it's really good to just be welcoming you all in this morning, um, seeing all of your faces. So, um, Psalm 1, 1 through 6. These are one of our Old Testament readings from today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The second passage from the Old Testament is Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? We're in Galatians 5, 16 to 25. But and you're going to kind of, we're going to walk up that mountain in sort of a spiral. So we'll hit kind of the first and the end points that are, are funneling us. They're moving us. Or you could think of points that he makes in the beginning as echoing at the end. And whenever you see those kinds of structures, it's what's at the peak. It's what's in the middle of the sandwich that matters the most. And despite Paul's mixed metaphors, this intentional structure in this text is pretty profound. And so I, I want to see that in the first few points that we make. They're going to be basic observations. Observations from the slope and observations from the summit. And then once we've seen the text and we kind of understand it together, I want to try and get some of the points that, that I think we draw away from it. All right. So we're going to be looking at something that kind of starts with uh, chapter 516, makes its way to 525, and we're going to focus at the peak of 519 to 23. But let's, let's take a look here in the beginning at what we would think of as the journey, the, the journey that's described in the beginning and at the end. Look at the structure of it. We see it at the beginning in chapter 5, 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, if you remember the but, all right, it's always good to pay attention to the different conjunctions and what's going on. What Brad ended with was a, as described, a cannibalistic church or a cannibalistic tendency of a church. I can either have my resources spent for your good or I can cannibalize you. I can take your energy for my good. That doesn't sound great. No, it was kind of like Brad said, a downer of a way to end in the end of verse 15. But verse 16 ends this way. But you don't have to do that. But there's another option. So what do we want to describe in this Christian life? We're going to describe it first this way. The Christian life is described as a journey with God. We say that in the beginning. I say this, walk by the Spirit. That's the point or the command. The implication or what happens, the results of that, is that you will not gratify the desires of 
the flesh. He says the same thing kind of at the end in verse 25, which is why I say this, this journey idea really brackets the text. He says, walk by the Spirit in verse 16, but he says also the same thing in 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This isn't the only time Paul has said this. In fact, we're going to look at this one verse in Romans just to hear that this is not unique to just this time with Galatians. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who, and here's his phrase, walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, that's not just unique to Paul, right? If you wanted to know who to pay attention to, sometimes in the early stories of the Bible, the way that God is speaking through Moses, trying to redeem the people that have come out of, uh, out of Israel, sorry, out of Egypt that are heading towards Canaan, uh, God often speaks and highlights the people in that story as saying that they walked with God. In the whole, what feels like a death script in Genesis chapter 5, there's, there's like one guy who stands out. And his name is Enoch. Everybody else lives, has kids, and dies. Lives, has kids, and dies. Enoch comes along, and he walks with God. It's, it's the moment that the spotlight shines on one guy. Noah is described in kind of the same way. He was someone who walked with God. And then when God is speaking to Abraham in chapter 17, he says, Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. So the first thing we got to get out of this is that the Christian life is a journey. We don't arrive somewhere and sit there. We're moving somewhere. We, we are on a journey. There is the progress that a pilgrim makes in their relationship with God. The second thing that we see is we kind of make our way up the slope that is bracketed a little bit inside of those first brackets is that on this journey, we are opposed. You can't miss it, can you? Because it's right there in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a humperdinck, and there is a man in black. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and in a similar way, the, uh, this opponent is mentioned in verse 24, where we read, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Death first. There is an enemy on the journey, point one, point two. Notice that also showed up in Romans chapter eight, didn't it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit, yes, but not according to the flesh. In other words, this isn't some just unique thing for the Galatians to hear. This is a big part of the way that Paul, when he's really playing out what the gospel is going to look like in an individual and in a church, he wants to let you know you're on a journey and you're opposed on that journey. The third thing to see then, as we move in from that, though, is that we're heading toward a goal. That on this journey, though opposed, we're going towards something. And the thing we're going towards is the fulfillment of the law. He says it one way, verse 18, 
if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, which goes to everything that we've been talking about in these first five chapters, first four chapters leading up to this. The contrast between, or not even yet totally the contrast, contrast between the law and faith. But as we, as we asked the question a little while ago, what is it that's actually going to bring transformation if it's not just listing out rules and making people follow rules? If that won't bring real character, heart-level shaping transformation and make us more like Jesus, if it's not the law, then what is it? Well, he says, you're not under the law, verse 18, but then bracket it again. After the fruit of the Spirit is described, he says, look, against such thing, there is no law. I'm not the only one saying this. If we were reading some other commentators, they would point out this sense of brackets that are just making their way in, that are working like sheepdogs to corral us toward a point right in the center. They're moving us up the slope so that we get to the summit and we hear it. But again, Romans chapter 8, right? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is a point he's making across the board that where we're going, where we're opposed, we're still at the end of the day trying to fulfill a law that we're not bound to anymore, that, but that ought to show up in different ways rather than just the rigid following of the letter of the law. Psalm chapter 1, which we heard read for us, gets at this concept a bit more. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 112, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 119, verses 35 and 92, lead me in the, your path of your commandments for I delight in it if your law had not been my delight I would have perished in my affliction but I will never forget your precepts for by them you've given me life in the middle of those verses 46 to 48 still Psalm 119 I will also speak of your testimonies before kings I shall not be put to shame for I find my delight in your commandments which I love and he says it again. I lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. This is all the structure that I think is just kind of inescapable as we're looking at this very familiar text is that we're being herded toward the main point. We hear something said, and we hear it echoed. We hear a journey, we hear the echo. We hear the opponent, we hear the echo. We hear the fulfillment. We hear the echo. And it should move us to ask the question, like one of those quarters that falls down, those, those spiraling funnels that kind of comes, we, we should be moving a little bit right now as we're, as we're spiraling in on this. Okay, okay, if it's not the law, if it's not the law, what is it? What's going to make us different? Because I see me and I don't like me. I see Jesus and I love Jesus and I don't want me in me. I want Jesus in me because I, I just don't have any hope and it seemed like the law is we're going to do it. 
It seemed like I could parent that way. I could be a good employee that way. I could be a good student that way. I could even make friend rules. People tell me something to do, and I've done it. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. I'm going to set up another rule, and then I'll obey the rule, and then I'll just be a different person. At the end of the day, the law is, is kind of broken that way, or I'm broken. I don't know what it is, but we should be spinning around right now trying to ask the question, how do I change? How do I stop being me and be more like him? How can I be me as I ought to have been. That's where this is moving us, isn't it? At the top of the mountain, we're asking the question, what is it? And I think that's where 5, 19 to 23 really moves us and gets us thinking. And the first thing that we need to see as we get to the top of the mountain is the one half of the contrast that is the point of the mountain. There is a massive point we have to understand from the peak of this thing, which is that the flesh is toxic and treacherous. You cannot trust Humperdinck. You cannot befriend the flesh because the workforce of the flesh is toxic and treacherous. Now, the works of the flesh, verse 19, are evident. Here, here they come. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These may make for popular movies. These may become increasingly not just the characteristics of the villains of movies, but also the heroes of movies these days. It doesn't change the nature of the flesh, which is that it is always toxic and it is always treacherous. It is always killing what God has designed to live and to thrive, and it is always treasonous against the kingdom, which we read in verse 29 or 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Heaven isn't for those who don't want to be there. Heaven, the, the joy of being with God in his presence is for those who long to be there. And those living like this don't want to be there. Because heaven's God's presence, his nature, the people of God are just... We're prone now to different things than these. This workforce is not friendly to us, nor a place and a force with which we should be friendly. This is instead what Eugene Peterson calls the kind of life that develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes, divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I could go on. It makes for great soap opera drama. And it makes for terrible dynamics in our home, doesn't it? 
This is terrible when our friendships devolve into these kinds of things. When a flesh has its way and Buttercup had her way and we just decide we're going to surrender to all this, hoping that it'll maybe just still befriend us a little bit. It will never, ever lead to life to befriend the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. Trying to say it a different way, the work of works will work in you the flesh's mortal will to corrupt the moral and the pure, to make the priest a sorcerer, the disciple an idolater, and all of peace unstilled. The work of works will work in you the flesh's hopeless sight to see what life can bring for me, to stir in friendship, enmity, from partners bitter rivalry as darkness hides the light. The work of works will work in you the flesh's suicidal rule that what is felt must be obeyed. That all hurt means I've been betrayed. That all injustice be repaid till vengeance cup is full. Have you ever lived that way or lived around others dominated by this way? This is the workforce of the flesh in a community that has decided to stop fighting. This is what we become. And given the fact that we are all too familiar with that way, we need to remember that's not the only view from the top of this mountain. We should be scared of what we see at the top of this mountain. We should be repulsed by what we become on our own when we surrender. And we should be more resolved to fight. And you might think that then the question is, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And what we're presented with is almost what feels like an analogy that's the opposite of do. And it's a tree. A tree that can be strong and rooted, but that I've never heard grunting out fruit ever in its life. My apple trees are a little sick. They're a little old. They're still doing okay. I can fit a volleyball through the trunk of the one, but it's miraculously still providing fruit. Apples became cider in Ryan's press, and we were so happy for that because they had been nothing but deer fodder and homes for little, you know, yellow jackets before that. But they still produce fruit, and I never once around any of these trees heard them going, the tree wasn't working but it was bountiful <coughs> and beautiful and that's the contrast <coughs> in verse 22 the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. 
This isn't an analogy that's unique to Paul. He stole it. I mean, he just flat out plagiarized this thing from Jesus, which is an okay way to write a letter to people. Because on one hand, Jesus said in John chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Later, he said in John chapter 15, thank you, we are going to need two today. said, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, <coughs> he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. And then later he says, abide in my love. Long quote by John Piper, but listen to the way he describes this. He says, since the fruit is simply the outforming of what is passed through the branch from the vine, we should ask, what is it that we receive from the vine? Jesus' answer is love. Abiding in Jesus means abiding in his love. According to verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. <clears throat> abide in me is replaced by abide in my love. And this shows more specifically what we receive when we're united to the vine, namely the sap of divine love for the nourishment and refreshment of other people. Christ's present love for me is his commandment to give me right now and, or his commitment, sorry, to give me right now and forever everything that is good for me. Therefore, abiding in his love means constantly receiving as from his loving hand all things as being good for me. This is why I'm so grateful for these Sundays where we look back, we see what God has done, and we say, hasn't he been good? So glad for the songs that Phil chose, that we accent both the goodness of God and the greatness of God, because a great God who is not good a powerful God who is not loving. I don't want to run to that God. A good God who's weak and impotent. I'm not sure I really want to run to that God. But a great and a good God. That God is great and God is good. Well, that's the kind of God I want to run towards. So that when I'm abiding in him, I'm abiding in the love of a good and a great God. Here's a question for you. It's a grammar question. What's the command coming out of all of that? Is it bear fruit? It's not. See, there are commands and there are consequences to commands. There's other ways of saying that in English teacher kind of terms. But there are things that we're told to do and there are things that happen because we do what we're told to do. And it's always very important for us to get the difference. Husbands often screw this up. The command given to husbands is lead, right, men? Actually, Ephesians 5 is very different. It's love. 
When Peter gets around at it, he's saying, live with your wife in an understanding way. That's your command. You'll get the leadership thing down, just kind of the way I've built you, sort of. But if you lead like that, oh, man, nobody wants that. The command is love. We have to get commands right, particularly when we're thinking about this relationship that we have with God. Because if we want to repent from the works of the flesh and then we figure out we have to do the works of the fruit, this is going to be a mess. If I look at this whole list of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, I'm like, how do I do the joy? That's like the tree sitting there figuring, how do I do the apple? And you're like, nah, dig around the tree, help the roots, figure out what it's drinking. And here comes an apple. The command, Jesus says, is abide. Abide in me, and then there's a consequence. We have to ask the exact same question of what we're looking at in Galatians chapter 5, don't we? There's been a lot going on in this passage so far. Have you noticed the lack of commands? There are two. And this brings us to our sixth point. Everything was so far, slopes and summit kind of observations. Let's get some takeaways here, all right? And they come in four points. The first of these, number six, if you're keeping track, is that we're guided by the Spirit of God. And here come the commands. We are to walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, verse 25a, 25b, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And here are the commands. Walk, keep in step. That's what Paul told you to do. The direct commands are walk and walk. Walk and keep up. That's kind of it. It's not do the fruit. And it's even in the most directest of ways, not kill the flesh. There are statements of those things where the action is sort of more implied, but what is directly commanded in this has to do with our first of our application points, our sixth of our total points. We are being guided by the Spirit of God. So get up and keep up. If you came to Jesus thinking that he was going to be content with you in your current state, there would be no activity in your relationship with God because you misunderstood grace to be something you received but then passively enjoyed. You missed the, the message. God's people are being redeemed. And as one of God's people, you are being transformed from where you were to where you're going. And this passage is moving us. And the good thing is that we are then being guided by the Spirit of God much like the man in black taking the princess away from what wanted to kill her to a life of safety. Where, yes, in The Princess Bride, he goes and robs people, but we're just going to eliminate that from the analogy. <laughs> Second point, though, point number seven, is that not only are we guarded by, or guided by the Spirit of God, we are then guarded by the Spirit of God. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You hear that? Opposition. 
we accent the one side of the opposition that the flesh is not your friend and therefore you are not to befriend your enemy because it is opposed to you and the one who's guiding and guarding you. But we have to understand this as well. He, the one who dwells in us, is actively opposed to the flesh and he's doing some business as well. Not only are we being guided in the way we need to go, we are being guarded by a strong foe of the flesh. The Spirit of God is not passive about the kind of life that we live. And that's why the poem that you have there in your bulletin also has a backside. Let me read the front again just to get it in context, but then we'll flip it over. The work of works will work in you the flesh's mortal will to corrupt the moral and the pure, to make the priest a sorcerer, the disciple an idolater, and all of peace unstilled. The work of works will work in you the flesh's hopeless sight to see what life can bring for me, to stir in friendship, enmity, from partners' bitter rivalry as darkness hides the light. The works of works, the work of works will work in you the flesh's suicidal rule that what is felt must be obeyed, that all hurt means I've been betrayed, that all injustice be repaid till vengeance cup is full. But this is not the kingdom way, nor the marks of Jesus' love. His heart was good and deeply kind, gentle, joyful of peace divine, controlled and patient when maligned, sourced from realities above. And this could be the garden way by what God grows in us. Instead of striving, we abide. Instead of withering, we thrive. Instead of death, we're alive, yielding fruit that comes from trust. And so the spirit still contends against the flesh's will. And so he pleads and so he leads that on the path to Christ we're freed. Because as branches, what we need is to grow in him. Be still. That, I think, is what Paul is getting at and what we should be taking away from what we've seen marching up this slope and from the top of this slope is that God is guiding and guarding, but then in that, he's preparing. Listen to the way this is said in verse 22. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the problem with us reading that sometimes is that we read 22, we hear a poem describing 22. We hear Eugene Peterson commenting on verse 22 and we're like, man, I live too much in 22. I'm too familiar with what's going on there. I feel the works of workforce of the flesh inside me and in my people. And I struggle because I feel the echoes of that. Let me reread for you a verse that came out of our prayer night, a verse that Brad preached from, commented from last week. I think is helpful once again. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The problem is if you've parked there and if all you hear right now is ending there, you are missing Paul's main point. He says, but, once again, the conjunction that matters, but you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you are being prepared for the kingdom of God. That is our eighth and almost final point. Don't worry, we're getting there. You are being prepared, church, for the kingdom of God. The workforce of the flesh, though familiar, is not final in your life. You are moving, you are, though opposed, being guided and guarded and prepared for the kingdom of God, which is here and coming and hard to describe because it's both and it's happening. And may it in us be increasing as we continue to say, Lord, your kingdom come as we prayed on our prayer night, in us, in all of us, and in all the world, may we be part of your arriving kingdom because you are bringing and preparing us for your kingdom. And the way he's doing that, it's our final point. We're planted in the kingdom of God. The gardener, the divine gardener is working a beautiful and a bountiful work in us. When he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the spirit in you is love. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Blessed is the church who trusts then in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its, it sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. May this be what we know as this year concludes and we look to the next. May this be who we become. Let's pray to that end. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity we have to trust you. We're so grateful that when we look back, we see what we've been freed from. And we're also so grateful for the fact that in being freed from that, we realize what you have prepared us for and where you've planted. And so I ask, Lord, that you would be at work in us. That we would not surrender. But that as you are opposed to the flesh, we would walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Find your voice echoing through ours. Find the intention, Lord, that you have for our hands being what we put ourselves to. May we participate with you on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close this time by taking communion. And so I want to invite the ushers to come and get the, uh, the elements here. I'm going to have you uh, keep your seats a little bit as we talk about communion. We have uh, we've taken communion in a number of different ways. And so as you guys come and grab it.